It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. When it comes to foreign policy, is President Trump operating under a withdrawal doctrine? That's what Richard Haas thinks. He's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. The Trump administration has withdrawn the U.S. from global efforts like the Paris Climate Accord and the U.N. Human Rights Council. Haas says we should be fixing flawed international relations instead of withdrawing. We're about to start the third decade of the 21st century. And think about the big challenges, pandemics, obviously, terrorism, climate change, how to regulate cyberspace, proliferation. What do these have in common? They are all global challenges. We can't solve any of them by ourselves. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute drives change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve the greatest challenges of our time. Today's discussion was held by the Society of Fellows at the Aspen Institute. Distance no longer means much. We live in a global era, says Richard Haas, where what happens thousands of miles away can deeply affect our lives. The coronavirus started in the Chinese city of Wuhan, but spread to the corners of the earth. The death of an unarmed black man, George Floyd, happened in Minneapolis, but anti-racism demonstrations are being held across the globe. Haas's latest book, The World, A Brief Introduction, aims to make sense of our complicated and interconnected world. He says global literacy is a must because what happens outside a country matters enormously to what happens inside. Haas has served as Director of Policy Planning at the U.S. State Department. This is his 10th book about foreign policy. He speaks with Jane Harmon, who leads the Wilson Center. Harmon, a Democrat, also served in the U.S. House. They spoke in early June. Here's Harmon. What does your book teach a reader? Uh, Let's imagine at the high school level or the beginning foreign policy level uh, about how to think about opportunity and how to think about America. What it teaches anyone at any level, whether you're a student, whether you're a 60-year-old going to vote this fall, and you have to think about who to vote for and why, uh, it teaches you that the world is interconnected, that nothing, uh, nothing stays local for long. Uh, again, we just had a graphic demonstration of that. It shows that isolationism is a dead end. We can stick our heads in the sand till the cows come home. But uh, like that ostrich, if I can mix my animal metaphors, we'll be washed away by the tide. It also shows that there's nothing in the world we can do better alone than we can do with others. One of the structural advantages of the United States is we have partners, we have allies, and indeed the last 70 or 75 years have been a remarkable era of history. One of the things I try to show, I teach a lot of history in the book, but the last 75 years, beginning with uh, the end of World War II, have been in some ways the greatest stretch of human history. There's been no great power conflict, There have been other conflicts, I understand, but no great power conflict. The average lifespan has increased by decades. Uh, Wealth has increased astronomically around the world. Billions of people have been lifted out of poverty. And what this shows to me is the value of international involvement and American leadership. And I try to explain that. Now, again, we can, you and I have had debates. Anyone listening to this, watching this can have debates about this or that policy. But my point is simply that we do better when we're involved in the world and we do better when we're acting with others. I don't think that can be argued. Well, the backdrop of my Zoom here is the Wilson Center, which is in the Ronald Reagan building. The Wilson Center is a living memorial to Woodrow Wilson, who many would credit as being our first truly internationalist president. Not that his record was perfect. It wasn't. But he had the vision for the League of Nations, which he didn't achieve, which became 
uh, the United Nations and which fund a lot of, uh, of international uh, organizations that we have that have connected our world. Lately, we've seen the U.S. withdraw from a number of those things, like the WHO. I'm not sure technically that's accomplished, like the Paris Treaty Accord, like the proposed uh, TPP, the trade agreement with Asian countries, uh, etc., and like a number of arms control agreements. And uh, I assume that that kind of withdrawal feeds this narrative that you're just talking about. Yeah, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post the other day calling it the withdrawal doctrine. There's a, a pattern here where for three years we've been leaving. And look, in, in principle, intellectually, you could make the case sometimes that withdrawal might be warranted, but only if you're better off with, a, with the alternative. Uh, what, I, what I don't understand is when we simply leave the field and take our soccer ball with us, then the game, they'll get another soccer ball. They play the game without us and we lose influence. We're not there to protect our own interests. And that I just don't understand. We have a pattern of doing that. The answer to flawed international arrangements and every international relation arrangement is some way flawed is better ones. You fix them or you supplement them with new and better ones. And that's what we should be doing. And I, look, and I would just simply say we're in an era of history. Here we are, Jane. We're about to start the third decade of the 21st century. And think about the big challenges, pandemics, obviously, terrorism, climate change, how to regulate cyberspace, uh, proliferation. What do these have in common? They're all global challenges. We can't solve any of them by ourselves. We've got to work together with others. In virtually every one of these cases, there's some kind of a global framework that's wildly imperfect. It comes up short. It is our, it's in our interest to improve these frameworks because otherwise, we are vulnerable, as we've seen, we are vulnerable to the consequences. I didn't mention China and Hong Kong, uh, which is just yet another issue uh, front and center. Um, and uh, as, you, as I'm sure this audience all knows, uh, China's recent announcement about the future governance of Hong Kong has not only got the folks in Hong Kong highly unsettled, but the entire world unsettled and the Trump administration proposing that we change our relationship with Hong Kong. Uh, many think, that, to use the soccer ball, that China, that China may be grabbing the soccer ball at a point of our weakness and restarting a new Cold War. This is, I'm just putting it out here as a, as a foreign policy, crucial foreign policy in, uh, issue, restarting a new Cold War and picking up the reins that we have dropped in a number of international organizations. I mean, China thinks the WHO is worth supporting. Again, it's not perfect. China thinks... Uh, that, that certain trading arrangements are not perfect but well supporting and, uh, 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 some kind of Asian infrastructure bank, uh, other things are worth supporting and maybe we don't. So what I'm asking you is, uh, if we don't uh, stay in the world that we help build, um, the imperfect liberal world order, and we withdraw to the, I guess, the geographic boundaries of the United States or maybe maybe even a smaller patch, uh, could China uh, basically become, um, sadly, the superpower in the world, the sole or the, uh, you know, certainly a, a power either equal to or eclipsing our power in the world? Well, I think in general, the alternative to a U.S.-led world is a nobody-led world. I think China has uh, certain limits to its power, certainly limits to its appeal and what it's doing in Hong Kong, how it mishandled the virus 
uh, will further limit its appeal. You see that in Asia, you see that in, uh, in, in, in Europe. I think China also has a lot of internal weaknesses, uh, demographic challenges, obviously political uh, challenges, environmental challenges, the economy has slowed uh, dramatically. So again, I'm not so much worried about what China does, I'm more worried about how the world unravels without the, without the United States, which I think would be the, the, the most likely uh, outcome. Now look, I, I also worry about a US-Chinese Cold War. Uh, this is the most important relationship of this era of history. And if we're in a Cold War with China, that's dangerous. It's expensive, it's distracting, and it means, for example, we won't be able to work together, say, on the North Korean nuclear and missile problem. We won't be able to work together on climate change. We won't be able to work together on pandemics. Uh, we won't be able to carry out those aspects of trade that are mutually beneficial. So I want to, if possible, avoid a Cold War. I actually want to enlist China to work on some of these global uh issues. I think that's the diplomatic challenge. And that'll take good old fashioned state diplomacy, foreign policy, consultations, negotiations. You said the, the alternative to a US led world is a nobody leads world. Uh, really? I mean, if we continue to decline, if our cities become, you know, this chaos doesn't end, uh, our election doesn't conclude, I'm just thinking of a parade of horribles. Uh, we are vulnerable to asymmetric terror attacks. Uh, North Korea is resurgent. You mentioned North Korea. Uh, it is testing uh, uh, both delivery systems and, and nuclear weapons. And let's just imagine uh, China is not our ally against a resurgent North Korea because cooperation is broken down. Are you sure there, there wouldn't be uh, a China-led world? I don't think there would be. I don't think Japan would stand for it. I don't think India would stand for it. The Europeans would push back. China, again, doesn't have a model that most others want to emulate. I also think China has its own real domestic challenges in terms of political continuity. Uh, the environmental degradation is, is profound. Uh, the one-child policy has all sorts of bad long-term demographic repercussions. No, the problem is the North, the North Koreans will do what they'll do. The Iranians will do what they're doing. Uh, the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda will come back and do some of what they do. Climate change will be much worse because it hasn't been a priority for, for China. That's what worries me, that the world overall will continue to deteriorate and we'll all, we'll all, pay, an enormous, uh, we'll pay, we'll all pay an enormous price for it. What about my thought that we're ripe for an asymmetric attack in the United States? I think uh, our intelligence community now believes that the shooting of American soldiers on a military base in Tampa that was training Saudi workers was Al-Qaeda inspired, the fellow who did it. And that sadly our vetting, which should have been a heck of a lot better, didn't catch this guy. But there's one example. Uh, Hezbollah has done things in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, that's an Iranian proxy in Argentina. Uh, getting inspired on the web by Russian bots or pick, pick, a, pick a source ain't that hard. So what do you think about that? And where would we, uh, well, look, where, where are we with that, given, again, all of our brain cells, sure. many of them focused on our burning cities? Well, look, I've long compared, funnily enough, terrorism to pandemics in the sense that they're both viruses and neither one can be completely eliminated. There'll always be terrorists, there'll always be people willing to die and kill for their political cause. 
this time it's COVID-19, we'll have COVID-23 or we'll have some bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics. So I just assume as a modern society and inevitably open to some extent that we will face these challenges. Borders are not impermeable. Oceans are not moats. Uh, sovereignty, sovereignty is not an absolute defense. We can, we can proclaim it till the cows come home. But, but we're, still, we're still, to some extent, vulnerable. So invulnerability is not, to me, a realistic goal. You want to reduce vulnerability. Above all, you want to increase resiliency, your ability uh, to absorb these attacks if and when they happen. But ultimately, I mean, also, though, as you, you've worked on in your career, you want intelligence to be strong so you can stop the attacks before they happen. We can build defenses. But as we again learned with both 9-11 and COVID-19, we have to build resiliency into our society. Terrorism, like there'll never be the battleship Missouri. Missouri, for those who didn't study the history, you know, this was the surrender ceremony for World War II. There will never be a battleship Missouri ceremony with, with terrorism any more than there'll be the equivalent with, uh, with COVID-19. Uh, these are now in some ways open-ended uh, struggles that we have to build our societies to cope with. I have a theory about terrorism, which is that the way we defeat or at least reduce the threat of terrorism is to win the argument with those uh, who attack us because they think we're evil. Uh, I think that's the better strategy than over-militarizing our response, which we've done for years. But uh, I'll, I'll leave that there because I do want to go to one other uh, topic, uh, where, uh, to the place I spent 17 years as a member and five years as a staffer. That's even longer than you've been at CFR all in. And that is called the United States Congress, or AKA the incredibly shrinking United States Congress. You have studied history, checks and balances, and our constitution make the Congress, the Article I uh, branch of government. Uh, and in history, uh, in my recollection, I have never seen Congress this weak, this feckless, this you know, unable, even to authorize or deauthorize the use of military force in various war theaters where we are. Uh, and right now, given this issue, uh, I, I, there are no signs of Congress, certainly no signs of one of the parties in Congress. What, uh, what are your observations about the role of Congress and whether it could play a constructive role at this point? Well, the Constitution is actually relatively sparse when it comes to talking about the foreign policy powers. There is a certain bias, though, towards the presidency. And over history, the presidency, the executive branch, has become the, pre has become the preeminent branch when it comes to foreign policy. But now the imperial presidency has reached a, a pretty extreme position. Uh, I think Congress has made a mistake over the years by delegating all sorts of authorities to the executive branch. There's over 100 authorities that the executive branch now in and of itself can decide how, whether and how they ought to be uh, exercised. Congress ought to pull those back. It ought to be using the hearing power wherever it uh, can. It's, it uses when it can the power of the purse to say fund, make sure that we're funding foreign aid and other national security tools uh, adequately. But you know, I'm not, not going to sit here and argue your basic point that I think the, the intended balance, which it doesn't have to be 50-50, but the intended balance between the executive branch and Congress when it comes to national security policy is, uh, to put it bluntly, the, out of balance, the balance is out of balance.
You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Join us for a set of conversations and ideas relevant to the times in which we live and to the future we face. The Aspen Ideas Festival is going all digital, and it's entirely free. Beginning June 28th, the festival will host a series of conversations streamed on our website, aspenideas.org. Speakers including Anthony Fauci, Anna DeVere Smith, Michael Eric Dyson, Maria Russa, Brian Green, John McWhorter, and many others will share fresh thinking across a range of topics. The arts, science, the economy, diplomacy, democracy, and racial injustice will be brought to the fore in these conversations. Sign up on aspenideas.org to receive program updates and reminders. And don't forget to tune in at 7 p.m. Eastern starting June 28th. Coming up, Warwick Sabin, Executive Director of the Institute Society of Fellows, takes questions from the audience. First, Jane Harmon resumes the conversation. Congress uh, writes the checks, and Congress funds our whole uh, menu of soft power, uh, to use Joe Nye's wonderful phrase, uh, not just our hard power. And soft power is basically what foreign policy is built on. And if we're defunding the State Department, we're defunding AID, we're collapsing a number of agencies, we're eliminating functions in the White House, what tools do we have? to do good foreign policy. Yeah, well, my good friend Bob Gates has a piece today uh, online in Foreign Affairs. It's coming out in the new magazine based on his new book. And he basically argues that we've over-militarized foreign policy. So what's happening is we're asking too much too often of the military tool. So we're wearing it out. We're often asking it to do things it was never designed to do. And I think we're underusing other tools. Uh, and people forget that national security includes diplomacy, public, private, consultation, negotiation. It includes intelligence. Uh, so it's, it's not limited to the, to the military. So look, I would think that one of the real challenges for the next administration and, and to the new Secretary of State would be, among other things, to revive the Foreign Service. Uh, it is, it has been, it's been decimated. And we need to once again attract the best and brightest. We probably need to bring back some people who retired early. We need to make lateral, en- lateral entries uh, possible. We ought to start funding training for along people's careers the same way the military does. We've got to start seeing people in the Foreign Service and in general the civilians involved in, a, in American national security every bit as important as the military. In history, and I think we're about to go to uh, questions, but in history, we have seen a lash up uh, between the State Department and the Defense Department. It's kind of a yin-yang deal uh, with the military, military force being the last resort. I mean, obviously, uh, I think it was Winston Churchill who said, jaw-jaw, not war-war. And I think jaw-jaw is what you're talking about. And uh, I don't know how you jaw-jaw if there's no one there. And so, I, I, again, I think we're agreeing. Uh, I think there needs to be a roadmap for whatever administration comes next, including this one, on how to restore our, our foreign policy uh, prowess, which is desperately uh, missing. And I'd say, again, about Congress. Congress has had great leaders in the past uh, on, on foreign policy. And you can think of the architects. I won't name the names, but I'm saying... Uh, the Congress's voice is missing here. 
And yes, there has been a, uh, a huge growth in, in executive power. This unitary executive theory didn't start with this administration. Uh, you can't even, you know, I would say the, the giant expansion happened on uh, Bush 43's watch uh, right after 9-11. Uh, and when we basically militarized our response, looking back on that, I was part of that history. I think we made some mistakes. I think the war on terror, calling what we did, the war on terror, over-militarized what, what we should have done and that having a lot of soft power then might have won the argument with a lot of folks and confined the problem, maybe. Uh, but, but I'm just making the point that uh, we have shortchanged ourselves, and I think you agree. Let me just ask, last question on, on COVID, because we've all mentioned it, and it is a pandemic, pan-world-demic. Uh, and uh, it did start in China. There's still some argument about why. Um, I, I don't see any hard evidence anywhere that it was a man-made uh, virus uh, deliberately sprung on on people in Wuhan and then from them exported anywhere. So I don't think that theory is good. But I also think, from what I've read and know, that uh, China was not not fully open with us. And uh, the intelligence uh, agencies in the U.S. were on this earlier than we responded. So, Richard, you have just become uh, the, the foreign policist, the, the head of the State Department in the United States, and we're facing this enormous uh, pandemic of COVID. What tools would you use now that we are not using? Well, at this point, uh, this COVID has happened. Now we're into, on one level, national responses uh, in terms of distancing, masking, testing, a lot of the things we haven't done terribly well on in this country. There's a, there is a big place for international cooperation, though, in a couple of areas at this point. One is on economics, uh, to help a lot of countries around the world that are, that are going to be overwhelmed by this economically. A lot of them came into the pandemic already in debt trouble. They risk being over, overwhelmed, and a lot of weak states could become failed states. And we learned what happened when states failed, not just on a humanitarian level, but in terms of terrorism or tyranny. So I think there's that. There's also going to need to be global preparations for sharing and funding of antivirals and of vaccines if and when any ever uh, emerge. It's just not gonna get done automatically. We've got, to think about, uh, we've got to think about that. We've also got to think about how we improve the global public health machinery. How do we improve the World Health uh, Organization? How do we improve the public health capacity of more than 100 countries that don't have, still don't have what they need? They're equivalent to the Centers for Disease Control. China's a different problem. China has the capacity. It chose not to use it. It didn't meet its international obligations. And that's a bigger problem. And that's, it's easy. And there, I think, essentially, one has to get into shaming and talking about it publicly and discrediting it. And also, we ourselves, despite everything China failed to do and what the World Health Organization failed to do early on, we failed to do things too. We obviously were not ready on testing. We weren't ready, ready on equipment. Uh, and all that. So we need to learn, we need to get ready next time because there will be a next time. And I think one of the important lessons of this, Jane, is this is not a one-off. This is not a black swan. This is what it's like to live in a global world. And whether it's climate or cyber attacks or terrorist attacks or, or virus attacks from a pandemic, this is what it's like. And we have got to get smarter about predicting them, stopping them, protecting ourselves and recovering from them. This is not our first rodeo, uh, as you would say. I mean, we've Absolutely. had pandemics before. 
the Bush administration, Bush 43, uh, spent some real time doing pandemic preparedness. Absolutely. Uh, and th that's two administrations ago. I I'm not positive that all that material was nurtured by the last administration, and it surely was not nurtured by this administration. If we're pulling out of the WHO and we missed the meeting uh, a week or two ago about how to share, at least as, as I understand it, how to share some form of, of uh, antivirals and other, and other medicines we're developing here, uh, I, I, you know, I'm pretty pessimistic that, that we're going to play the role we need to play, not just in the world, where, of course, I agree with you that an obligation we have, and it is a, consistent with our history, is to help uh, countries around the world. Uh, it's, and, and it's in our national interest to do that, oh, by the way, because we get their respect and, and uh, support. Um, but, but in addition to that, uh, we'll fail domestically if we build walls around the preparedness efforts of others in the world and they won't they won't reach us i don't know that we can we can fight a pandemic with one hand or maybe one and a half hands behind our back uh, again there's uh there aren't unilateral solutions to global challenges and again if that's this is a this is a learning experience it's a painful one we've lost 100,000 lives or more we've got 40 million unemployed uh, this is a painful learning experience, but it would be even more painful if we didn't learn from it. And part of what the learning has to be is the world matters. We are not invulnerable. We're not disconnected. And we've got to be prepared for it. We've got to lead it. Richard, I want to say we're going to questions now, but I think you have performed a great service by, by, by writing a how-to book that hits exactly now when most people now are practicing how not to. And Thank wouldn't you. it be great if our kids, grandkids, etc., cetera, uh, learn from your book and are better leaders than we were? Anyway, I think we're ready for questions, and, and I think Warwick is going to monitor that. Absolutely, Jane. Thank you so much. But I want to start with a more generalized question. Does the current issue of Foreign Affairs Magazine includes an article by Daniel Dresner, Ronald Krebs, and Randall Schweller? that argues that the era of viewing international relations through a lens of grand strategy is over and that moving forward, foreign policy should be conducted on a more opportunistic ad hoc basis. What's your reaction to that? Can grand strategy still serve a productive role for US foreign policy under leaders capable enough to execute it? Or is it time to bury it as the authors suggest? Well, I'm a great believer in comprehensive, consistent responses if they, if they make sense. And I would say going forward, uh, if I were designing U.S. foreign policy now, I would say the principal preoccupation of the United States and the world ought to be global arrangements. I think we've entered a period of history where global challenges like climate, pandemics, proliferation, terrorism, cyber, are the principal challenges we face. Now, before anyone jumps down my throat, they are not the only challenges we, we face. We still face the traditional agenda, rising China, uh, a difficult, shall we say, to say the least, Russia, and so forth. So we have the old agenda, but I think what's unique about this era of history is these global challenges. And I would argue, yes, I think there is a place for, if you want to call it, grand strategy in designing a foreign policy around that in terms of thinking about institutional arrangements. Uh, and I think, say one other thing, grand strategy is not only good in terms of it's good for planning. You have to sometimes make long-term decisions, uh, investments. It's also good for 
for working with allies. It's also good for educating the American public. If you can basically go to the American people and say, here's where we are and for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, this is what really matters. And that's why I'm asking you to support this. That's why we're spending your precious tax dollars on that. I actually think that ability to explain is essential if we're going to have the kind of consistent foreign policy we need to have. So I haven't given up uh, on that sort of a uh, long-term comprehensive foreign policy. Could I add one thing to that? And that is that we've ever had this you know, dispute about do we need realists or idealists? We need both. Uh, but what we don't have at the moment is any strategy. We have tactics. And the tactics are all short-term to guarantee somebody's election to this or somebody's poll numbers to that. And that's not foreign policy. And so everybody needs to read Richard's book to, to learn how to, how to make foreign policy. Moving to the next question. Uh, you've made the case for maintaining a constructive relationship with China, given the growing significance of transnational issues where we must cooperate, such as the pandemic, terrorism, and climate change. But an intense anger is growing at the Chinese, exacerbated by election year politics, no doubt, because of their handling of the virus and other factors, including their increasing repression at home and aggressiveness abroad. Assuming an increasingly adversarial relationship, how can this be managed most effectively to advance our ideals and interests? There are lots of things that China does that should give us real heartburn. I, I understand that. Uh, what is it going to take to work out a relationship that avoids a Cold War? It's going to take both sides, first of all. If it, take, it takes two to tango. Uh, I, would, I would tell the next national security advisor or secretary of state to make this his or her priority, uh, to spend a lot of time talking with the Chinese about the rules of the road, what we think regionally and globally. Even more important, I'd say, let's get together with our allies. The structural advantage of American foreign policy during the Cold War vis-a-vis -vis Russia is we had voluntary allies. Russia had imposed satellites. We had voluntary allies in Asia and in Europe. With China, we also have all sorts of partners and allies in Europe and Asia. What do we do? We walk away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. What do we do? We beat up regularly on South Korea and Japan over the levels they spend on their defense, even though they're spending more than they uh, used to. That makes no sense to me. So yes, I would talk to the Chinese, but even more important, I would come up with a common front to working with China and say, okay, it's not just us. We represent what, 20, 25% of the global economy, but we've now joined with these other countries. We now represent 50% of the global economy. So here's gonna be the rules. You want access to our, our markets, here's what it's gonna take. So I think we, we basically ought to make it a multilateral enterprise. You know, will China do certain things? No, but we can then make them pay a price for it. We can also raise uh, the cost of their acting badly in other places, whether it's with sanctions or with greater defense preparations. But the key to this is going to be working with our partners and allies, at the same time having a serious conversation with the Chinese themselves, less in public, a little bit more in private. Great. We have a very, very simple, easy question. <laughs> he says, in a shifting world, the Middle East dynamics have altered where Israel and the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia have become convenient partners and the president favors defensible borders with regional financial help to the Palestinians to build a modern nation. What Israel-Palestinian solution do you favor? Well, I guess I would disagree with the premises of just about everything in that question. I okay. think the possibility of normalization between Israel and the Sunni Arab states is dramatically exaggerated. I think there's limits to what they will do without uh, progress on the Palestinian front. 
I think what's going on now is there's no possibility of a two-state solution, uh, given divisions on the Palestinian side between Hamas and Gaza and the authority in the West Bank. I don't think what Israel with this administration are putting on the table would be acceptable to any Palestinian leadership. And what worries me is not only will there not be a two-state solution, but we seem to be moving down the path of annexation. And I think two things could come of that. One could be real destabilization of Jordan and the Israeli-Jordanian relationship, which has been one of the cornerstones of Middle East peace. The other would be Israel, to me, uh, what's so important about it, what's so wonderful about it, and what I think Americans need to support is Israel as what? A Jewish, democratic, secure, uh, and prosperous country. And what worries me about the path it's going down is it's going to force itself to choose. And in particular, I don't believe Israel can be both democratic and Jewish on the path that's going down. Because remove, the two-state solution is dying. And if you end up with a de facto one state or one state plus outcome, Israel will either, have, either be Jewish or it will be democratic, but it cannot be both. And I think that would be a tragic outcome. And Jane, you had something to add, I think. I totally agree with that. I would add, though, that one of the things Israel has counted on for her uh, however many years it is since 1948 uh, of existence, I guess I need better counting skills, uh, is bipartisan, rock-solid support from the United States. And that is fracturing over this uh, new policy of unilateral annexation. And I think that is a tragedy in the United States, but it will be a huge tragedy for Israel and Israel's future security. And I agree with every other thing that Richard said. How do you view the threat of disinformation both from a foreign actor, uh -huh. self-induced perspective, to our ability to understand the world, govern effectively, and conduct foreign relations? Look, I take foreign disinformation seriously. The Russians are obviously, they never stop doing it. And there may now be elements from other places, possibly China, possibly North Korea, possibly Iran. Uh, there's things we ought to do in terms of how we manage social media. Uh, and all that, I worry about efforts to delegitimize or otherwise interfere in our uh, elections. So that, I think, you know, think about responses falling into a couple of categories. One are things we do to protect and manage elections, social media, and all that. Two is what we do to push back against foreign governments so they're less tempted to do this with sanctions or perhaps cyber efforts of our own. The third, though, is also the education of the American public. And uh, I think we're less vulnerable to being manipulated if Americans are better educated. Conspiracy theories tend, not, tend to thrive amongst people who don't have basic information. So again, I, I would love to have an America where courses about the world and also courses about American democracy, about civics, were required in high schools and colleges as a condition of getting a degree, where the news actually covered the news. Uh, so I would like to move to a place where the population was better educated and then whether it was foreigners or anyone else who tried to manipulate them, they would be in a better position to recognize it for what it is and to dismiss it. Jane, go ahead. Uh, we know that Russia interfered with the 2016 election. And Richard mentioned this one coming up. And uh, I'll say it here, uh, Russia and, and probably other countries and rogue actors are already interfering in our 2020 election. And we're going to have to spend a lot of time making sure uh, not just that information people get is uh, as, as accurate as possible so they can make informed decisions, but also that voting is protected. And uh, I can imagine 
uh, somebody out there after uh, the election in, in November saying it was rigged, it was a hoax, uh, so on and so forth, and the results are false, and then having uh, uh, chaos here. Um, in the interest of time, I'm going to combine two questions that are not perfectly related, but they're, but they're close enough. Uh, first one is, what are the repercussions of the U.S. pulling out of slash defunding uh, the World Health Organization uh, in cooperation for the global pandemic? Second question is, you describe Trump's foreign policy doctrine as the withdrawal doctrine, uh, unilaterally leaving TPP, WHO, Open Skies Treaty, Paris Climate Accord, the INF, and UNESCO. What opportunities are we creating for China to gain standing? So. Uh, WHO first, and then sort of this greater question on, on unilateral withdrawal. I think the, the impact of U.S. withdrawal uh, from the WHO and defunding of it, it hurts a little bit the ability of countries that are dependent upon its funding to deal with the current pandemic. It's, its bigger impact is on the next one, quite honestly, uh, and it's on other diseases. Uh, the, the WHO is not just in the business of dealing with uh, COVID. It deals with a host of uh, health challenges across the board. Indeed, I actually um, I have a chapter on in the book, and I, I think some it would do, be wiser to somewhat change its priorities. That's another conversation. But the bottom line is it has made contributions to a wide range of health challenges. And so the bigger problem might be the impact on other diseases and on the ability to can't contend with future viral or bacteriological uh, Outbreaks. You know, will China get something of a free ride? Sure. And you know, if we're there, we're in a better position. I mean, just give me. Let me just give you an example. Imagine instead of sending the letter he sent, the president had called the meeting of America's natural allies and partners in Asia, Europe, where have it, and said, "We got a problem with the WHO. Uh, here's what it is. Let's talk about an agenda for reform of the WHO." So to make it more effective and to make it more difficult for China or anyone else to get away with what China did this time. That seems to me that would have been a much uh, wiser policy. And by the way, a tougher one on China. Now, essentially, China gets the field, uh, gets to play in the field without us pushing back. Also, that uh, our withdrawal from the WHO pulls most of its funding. And I know it's been a big deal to this administration to have burden sharing and all that. Uh, but if the WHO ceases to exist, given the flaws in the way it's managed itself, given a lot of things, Richard's right that uh, one of the things we should be doing is making international institutions work better. Uh, but if we have no WTO, a WHO, and oh, by the way, we may, may not have a WTO either, uh, then what? How do we manage the next pandemic at all and or predict it? Let's start with that. And on the WTO, we haven't talked much about the uh, the economic meltdown, Richard mentioned it, but it's happening in this country too. If we pull out of all of these trade agreements and international organizations and we blow up the G7, which may be happening under our eyes, uh, then what? I mean, where are we left in terms of trying to put 40 million people back to work and restart our economy? Um, I want to thank both you, Richard and Jane, uh, for taking this time uh, certainly during a very pivotal moment in our nation's history and, and global affairs to share your perspectives, to give us insight. Uh, again, Richard and Jane, thank you so much for thank being here. Thanks. Thank you, Jane. Richard Haas is president of the Council on Foreign Relations. 
His latest book, released last month, is The World, A Brief Introduction. Jane Harmon is an Aspen Institute trustee and former U.S. Representative for California. Their conversation was initially held for Society of Fellows members on June 2nd. The Society of Fellows is a national community of leaders who sustain and support the Aspen Institute. To view a video of the original conversation, hear more like it, and learn about SOF, go to aspeninstitute.org SOF. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.